0: Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast
1: like a boss.
2: God shall give, them, that's not shall lose. So the Bible says, and it still is new, baby. Mama may have, and Papa may have. God bless the child. It's his own. Said the strong get more while the weak ones fade. Empty pockets don't. child that's got his own. That's got his own. Money, you've got lots of friends. Just don't take too much. Mama may have. And Papa may have. got his own
3: It's moments like this that make me feel like I have the best job in the world. I have the amazing privilege to let you know that that was Jose James with his rendition of God Bless the Child by Billie Holiday. And I'm so excited to be sharing this interview with you. Jose James is one of my favorite musical artists. And to have the opportunity to sit down with him and do this interview for coming up next was an absolute honour and privilege. You may know Jose James as the man behind albums such as No Beginning, No End, The Dreamer, and Yesterday I Had the Blues, his tribute to Billie Holiday. He was just here for the 2016 Melbourne International Jazz Festival, and now I get to bring him straight to you. And you can find Jose on the social medias at Music. And you can find the music of Jose James on any of your usual spots. iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find good music. And speaking of iTunes, why don't you open that app? Go on Coming Up Next. Hit the subscribe button and rate and review the show. It is important and it does help me to bring you more amazing guests like my guest today on Coming Up Next. And at the end of the interview, I'm going to play you another one of his tunes. It's called Do You Feel? And it's off the No Beginning, No End album. And now... I handball you over to my interview with Jose James.
4: Thank you so much, Jose, for doing this podcast with me. It's uh it's it's quite a privilege for me to sit across from you. I started listening I heard you first on um PBS here in two thousand and eight. I oh, yeah. heard uh they played a song, it must have been Park Bench People or um, Spirits Up Above mm. uh, on the radio here while I was working on a Guillermo del Toro film that was shooting here. Very good. And I remember, like, dri- I was driving this truck, and I remember I just like, had to pull out my phone and write down who this artist was. Oh, thanks. Man. Um, no, thank you. Um, I've, you know, been listening to your music ever since. Been quite a, uh, an amazing through line for me since first discovering. Um, and you're here in Melbourne as part of the Jazz Festival um, touring your Billy Holiday tribute um, album what, what was the thinking behind creating this album because there's been quite a, a consistency of each album being a little bit different than the last one mm.
1: yeah you know um, this album came out last year We're in 2016 now, just in case anyone's Mm. listening from the future. (laughs) Um, And, you know, last year was the year of her centennial. And I just thought, like, wow, like, I I don't like tributes to people. I I think they're usually terrible, really. Mm. Because, um, I mean, anybody in the industry knows, like, it's rarely a heartfelt well-planned thing it's like oh shit it's john coltrane's 80th birthday Mm. let's get you know the cast of characters we know like people who are associated with him whoever's hot right now you know let's like spread the money around get all the managers to say yes and labels and you end up with kind of like a high on talent low on preparation thing usually you know what i mean (laughs) just to
4: be real like no i understand it's like films they
1: do yeah you know what i mean Um, but Billie Holiday is my first memory like literally the first thing I remember on this in my life is being three years old um, my mom used to have these like book like handmade bookcases of like cinder blocks and and uh, wood planks you know Mm. perfect size for a vinyl and the whole bottom shelf was just all her vinyl collection wow and so as a kid I used to just sit on the floor and pull out records and like go through everything And um, my first memory is seeing this Billie Holiday record and being like, wow, who is this? You know, and I remember, you know, her, her, I I think it was, you know, you're three, so you don't know what everything is, but I think (laughs) she was the only one that was in black and white. Mm. She, I remember like, she's looking away from the camera. Everyone else is like trying to sell you. And she, you know, Billie... She just had a different thing, and Mm. somehow it captivated me. I asked my mom to play the record, so literally, as far as I can remember, Billie Holiday's been there. Mm. And and you know, before I was like a musician or knew what music was, somehow she really resonated with me. Um, And then later, when I was in high school, you know, like fourteen. You know and hip-hop was like huge and you know alternative rock so-called whatever was huge too Mm. um and i was like full of all the angst and all that shit yeah yeah um she really cut through you know she really she's like a philosopher to me like she really understands the human heart and she's not afraid to get her hands dirty you know what i mean Mm. like i mean now we think about you know artists like um Amy Winehouse, for example, you know, she, she couldn't have existed without Billie. You know what I mean? Billie Holiday was the first person, I think, in jazz. I mean, definitely it, had, it existed in blues, and she comes from blues too. Bessie Smith, you know. But mm. she's the first person to bring that super raw, it like it is to jazz, In in as far as I'm concerned. Um, I mean, a lot of people would say Louis Armstrong. But it's a little different. You know, Louis Armstrong was always like, well, things are going to get better. With Billy, like, you didn't know mm. it was, it was going to get better. Like, sometimes it wasn't. Like, yeah. when she's saying about, like, being abused or being, like, left, like, you believe it, man. You're like, fuck, like, mm. that's it.
4: You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. so for me. Um, it's really tapped into the buzzword authenticity.
1: Right. Mm. Exactly. So I thought okay cool you know this is um I mean to be like super honest you know I knew there were going to be a lot of tributes to her and I figured a lot of them would suck and I she <laughs> means a lot to me so yeah. I said you know this is this is a chance for me to not add anything to her her anything her name but to let my fans know what she
4: means to me mm. yeah it's a beautiful thing to to be able to do justice and actually pay tribute to uh, someone who's been so influential in your life and career. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, there are a couple of interesting points uh, that you were talking about there. You're talking about your childhood. Um, did you grow up in a musical house? Kind
1: of. Yeah. Like, you know, my parents split up before I was born. Mm. Uh, my dad's a musician, but I didn't meet him until I was like five. So, yes and no, you know what I mean? Like, I always knew of my dad, and, like, he was, like, a musician. I'd see him play in Minneapolis. He's, like, a very well-known musician in Minneapolis. Um, That's where you're from? Yeah, that's where I'm from. And, um, you know, my mom loves music. She has zero musical talent, (laughs) but she, you know, she has a great taste. So she, you know, she played me, like, a ton of stuff, I had a good record collection. Um, She's a hippie, so, you know, Peter Paul and Mary and Jimi Hendrix and mm. Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah. All that kind of stuff, you know, 60s, 70s. Um And, you know, like, like, it was a really special time. You know, I was born in 78, so my first record, my first album was, was Purple Rain on vinyl. Mm. And... You know just to be in Minneapolis like with Prince coming out with that record man was really special yeah you know like because everybody was obsessed with Michael Jackson off the wall and then going into bad you know hurt to thriller I should say and um you know the to have like somebody from your hometown competing with Michael Jackson was like mm. mind-blowing yeah so I you know I mean you know he just passed away um, really, I'm still trying to process that loss of, of losing Prince, and I wouldn't be here without him. You know, just conceptually, you mm-hmm. know, for him to say, "Yeah, you don't have
4: to be from L.A.,
1: you don't have to be from New York, you can be from Minneapolis." Like, kidding me?
4: You know yeah. what I mean? He really was all ju- just about the creative, yeah, just creating. Did you ever, did you ever get a chance to meet him? I didn't, sadly. Hmm. It's quite a it's it's a funny void. That is left when people uh, of that kind of caliber do pass on.
1: Oh, it's huge. Mm. I mean, there's no, there's, you know, Stevie Wonder, and when you start thinking about like people on his level, if there's like five people mm. left, really. I mean, if we're going to be like super real, it's yeah, like yeah. Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, I'm struggling <laughs> to think of, you know, I mean, I would say David Boyd, and he just passed away. You yeah, yeah, I mean? yeah. It's like people who, were, like, consummate musicians um, who were in it for the love of music. Mm. That's something, you know, I just had dinner here last night with um, Tim Phillips, and we were talking about people who get into music for music Mm. and people who get into music to get famous. And it's pretty clear, you know, after a couple of years, what Mm. people are in it for. And, you know, I don't, this, either side, I think they each have their own merits. But you know when you talk about Prince or Stevie or Aretha or Billy these people did it for the love, man. And mm. they put in like years before they got famous, you know. Um and you know, I think it's it's a big difference with my generation definitely like millennial generation we want everything now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean Whenever I get frustrated, I, re- I remember that Marvin Gaye didn't win a Grammy until sexual healing, 1983. Mm. And you think, like, Jesus Christ, like, this guy put out what's going on. He didn't win a Grammy. You know mm. what I mean? It's like, okay,
4: <laughs> some perspective is needed. Yeah, yeah, a little you know? bit of patience Yeah, can go a long way. Or exactly. well, persistence, I suppose, with your creativity. Do you remember the first time that you... Did perform any music or any sort of performance really where you were it might have been in during childhood or something and you were like yeah man this is something that i want to do you know what um
1: i went to i went to two high schools um i was a high school dropout too for a while i was Mm -hmm. a fifth year senior (laughs) hated school like always hated school i was always bored in school um and I hate to sound like one of those kids I was like, I was always bored in school, but I really was. Like, I just, yeah. I was never challenged. And uh, I just kind of just gave up at a certain point. I was like, fuck it. I'm done with school, yeah. you know? Um, and so my first college was, a, my first high school was a Catholic high school. So we sang a lot of Vivaldi and church music and stuff, which is like beautiful, but There's no way to make it your own, Mm. you know what I mean, in my opinion. You you can't twist it and change it. It it is what it is. You're singing a part. It's gorgeous, and you're part of this group power, you know. Then I dropped out of high school, um, started working, got my own apartment. You know, I was like 16 or whatever. And I went back to school the next year at an arts high school, South High School, and um, they had a jazz and pop choir which I started singing in and performing in. I joined all the choirs. I, I think I took three music classes, one driver's ed course, one college course, mm. and that was it. I barely went to school. You know, I would show up and do like my music classes, and leave at like ten. You yeah. Know? And um, there was a performance by this group called Echoes of Ellington, which was like a ten-piece band. I think, like a small big band playing jazz. And that was, like, my first time I sang with, like, a professional-level group, you know. Mm. Um, so they picked, like, the best, I guess, of us, like, from from South High. So they picked me, and they picked this guy, Mike Lewis, who at the time was playing alto sax, and now he plays bass with, like, a bunch of indie bands and stuff. Um, so they had to sit in, and I got to sing, like, Route 66, you know. Mm. And it was the first time... I mean, it was at school. It wasn't like we were at a venue or anything, but it was the first time I felt like, oh, I'm on the other side now. You know, I'm like with a real band, listening to the music from on stage. And I wasn't a kid. I was like performing in front of the kids and they were looking at me like, I want to be that guy. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I got that like high from music. And that was it, man. I was like, all right, I'm doing this. And I could tell by the way, you know, musicians reacted. I was good, you know, and, and you know, any like young artist listening, I think um, it's important to like kind of only listen to your peers at a certain point um, and elders, people who do what you do, because they're really the only people who are
4: mm, tapped in.
1: Yeah, they're the only people who understand, you know, um, it can be dangerous because people are obviously jealous and... <laughs> backbiting especially like singers you know what i mean but (laughs) but you know like the fact that i've sung for some pretty high level artists like aretha like um mccoy tyner and like they liked my my shit Mm. that's what i carry around you whenever i'm at a crossroads i'm like well fuck it man aretha franklin liked the way i said fuck every you know what i mean like yeah yeah Fuck a critic. Fuck a... Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's Aretha Franklin, you know? And... What did you sing? For? Oh, God. So, um, I was working with Chris Bowers, an amazing jazz pianist. Um, and to make a long story short, he was in the Thelonious Monk International Piano Competition. She was one of the judges. She fell in love with him, uh, musically, and...
4: <laughs> Disclaimer. Yeah.
1: And she hired him to play her 70th birthday party in New York. And he asked me, he was in my band at the time. So I got in by default, you know? Yeah, wow. And God, I'll never forget it because it was like a pretty intimate party in New York, right? In Central Park South. And I'm sitting here like, I want to say like 10 feet away from Aretha. Next to her is Clive Davis on the other side of the room is Al Sharpton and everyone else is just like, you know, who's who of New York people. And I sang, do you feel, which is on no beginning, no end album. Mm. And it's a gospel song. And I'm like, why? And as soon as I started singing, I'm like, why the fuck did I choose this song? (laughs) I go out of all the songs to sing for Aretha Frank. You want to sing a gospel song? Like you idiot. (laughs) And it was the most intense moment of my life. I mean, she just, like, turned around and stared at me the whole time. And I had no idea if she liked it or not. And we finished the song. I think I sang Trouble, to a couple other things. Finished the song. The room was, like, it felt silent, and she, like, beckoned to me with, like, with one finger. Yeah. And she's the queen, man. Yeah, yeah. And I, like, walked from the stage to her, and it was, like, the longest walk of my life because I had no idea what she was going to say. And I bent down, and she just said... Young man, and I'm like, oh my god! You know what I mean? <laughs> and she's like, that was very good. I I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. And yeah, I was like, yeah. Oh my god. Okay, thank you. So now I could die at any moment, and I would be totally happy.
4: Yeah, life is complete.
1: Yeah, I mean, Aretha Franklin. God, I mean, that's. She's like God, for singers. Mm. Come on, man. That that's it. That's the top. You're never gonna go beyond that. So. How did you feel when you when she said that to you? I don't think I thought about anything. I just I just like heard it and was like this whole thing is bizarre. This whole night. I was very grateful and then I, you know I felt a lot of relief, man. I felt like a ton of relief because we walk around with all these voices as artists, you know, and and just as people mm. saying you can't do it. You know, society says being creative for a living is, like, a bad thing. Really. Unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. from a, with a kid, you know. It's, like, it's either, like, it's either uh, an exciting out-of-control thing. Like, rock, you're a rock star, and you're running around, like, doing drugs and, like, just losing money, and you're out of control, and then you die. You mm. know what I mean? That's kind of, yeah. like, the <laughs> idea, you know. Um, That's the path. Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to talk about, like, putting 20 years in, and getting slightly, you know, better fees, 5% every year and making like harder and harder decisions with your career. And like, that's boring. Nobody wants to hear about that, but that's the reality of most, you know, like you said, filmmakers, Mm -hmm. directors, actors, writers, top liners, producers, whatever. Um, So, I mean, podcasts like these are really important to remind people like, Hey, it's a, it's, it's, it's a lifetime. Of expression, mm. I'm reading this this amazing book. It's all uh, Robert De Niro interviews, and he talked about the Godfather, and he he, he wasn't going to do it. You know, I guess they wanted Jack Nicholson, which seems hilarious <laughs> now. <laughs> yep, <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I'm going to do this other movie." He said all his agents told him not to do it, and it was only Francis Ford who was like, "Dude, you have to do this movie." And he's like, Oh really? Like, all right, I guess. Cause you know, nobody knows mm. Godfather could have been a total flop. In hindsight, we all say, oh, of course he did it, you know, but he said the reason why it worked is because he didn't want the part, mm. which is interesting. He said, everything I've gone after was terrible, ended up being terrible. Anything he chased ended up being terrible. He didn't chase that part. He got it. And of course now it seems
4: like yeah. inevitable, but it totally wasn't, you know, there's a great uh, Jim Carrey quote, and I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember exactly what it is. But he said something like, "I, I, I wish everyone could achieve their dreams, so that they would realise that uh, it's not the be all and end all." Yeah. Um, and it's you know it's all it's all about the journey, and I think to your point, um, there is no such thing really as an overnight success. It's you know years and years of hard work that goes into creating that and then i guess if you're lucky you get that kind of break where people really start to pay attention to what you do and what you've done if that's if that's what you want right um something that really intrigues me about your body of work which i mentioned earlier is the kind of diversity of your albums and how it's a constant kind of evolution and in reading up about you um discovering that this is a really was a conscious decision that you made not to kind of pigeonhole yourself into like a little box because you know people love to put categorize everyone and i think something that's becoming i i'm not sure because i don't have a, an amazing understanding of the history of music but this kind of uh, fusion of, of so many different um genre bending kind of artists seems to be becoming more and more diverse so I suppose, what was the thinking behind you initially uh, when you decided that you didn't want to pigeonhole yourself or, I suppose framed positively, that you wanted to express yourself in whatever way uh, you were inspired to?
1: Well, I've got to give a lot of credit to um, Charles Peterson. you know, like it was interesting, I, I fell into the same trap that I think most. Um, jazz students and young people fall into definitely now I mean you know, I can't speak for the 50s and 60s because you know in the 50s jazz was like pretty much what it was you know mm-hmm. what I mean you didn't have you weren't, there was no hip hop or yeah, like yeah. indie rock to do <laughs> you know what I mean but I think when you're a young artist now getting into jazz like you fall into the kind of the rabbit hole of jazz history and that's kind of all you're into and to the point of like not liking or just excluding contemporary music you know Mm. Um, and that's a that's not a good place to be you know I mean when I met Giles I could have told you anything about like John Coltrane's discography or like who played on what Mm. album and alternate takes and Sonny Rollins and Blue Note and Riverside and you know what I mean like that whole thing and he reminded me, he was like, dude, like there's a whole music world out there again. Like he, he's the first person that I met who like knew as much as I knew about jazz, if not way more. And he knew that much about all the other styles too. And I was like, oh shit, okay. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in London and dubstep was like just beginning to emerge and i have to tell you that was like the most exciting time of my life musically like going to plastic people which is now gone in east london um hearing djs play like things they had just made that day maybe or like that month or that week Mm. i mean that to me i was like this is what jazz is now this is where that energy went you know hearing um yeah. Just like really new ideas and that have never happened before. Sounds that have never been made before. Mm. That was like my, like seeing John Coltrane at the village Vanguard, like meeting Benga, meeting um, floating points, meeting all these like amazing producers and DJs. So that was super cool, you know, and really, um, you know, Jowes had the idea of, of me covering park bench people which was great and it like reconnected me to to my hip-hop roots because he's like, dude, you're real young, like, mm. you know what I mean? But it's like, it's tough because in order to have a real jazz career, you kind of have to sort of disavow all that other stuff in a way. Because yeah. people don't really want you to um, be connected to Drake or like you know what i mean yeah, like it's like kind of oh mentality. that's yeah exactly yeah. exactly um and you know Robert Glasper wasn't super on the scene he wasn't doing i mean he was doing his trio stuff but he wasn't really you know he like black radio or like the experiment it wasn't quite there yet and i really have to credit him too with like leading the way and opening this huge door for people so kind of a roundabout answer but um it was always there, but Giles gave me the permission to sort of just like be all of it, you know, and mm-hmm. I would do gigs with just him. You know, just like me singing and he would like DJ and that was super cool. Like yeah. in Scotland. That would have been awesome. Totally hammered in Scotland. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, one yeah. in the morning and I was like, Oh wow, this is so much fun.
4: You know what I mean? That's kind of the rock star version of uh exactly. jazz musicians. Exactly. Uh life. Um and Giles Peterson produced your first two albums, didn't he? Or Was on his label.
1: Yeah, I mean he um, he kind of executive produced, I would right. say. Yeah, yeah. He was the he was the don of of uh, of Brownswood man, you know. And it, and it was it was an interesting time because that was his return to that industry, you know, mm. making records again. Um, and he, God, he signed some amazing talent. And I think, you know, like a lot of sort of visionaries, Giles was then and is now like ahead of the curve. Um, In a way that's great artistically, but like commercially not so much. You know, like Mm -hmm. he signed Ben Westbeach, who is now having huge success as Breach, you know. Um, And, you know, people didn't get his first albums, which I loved. Yeah. I don't think people got a lot of stuff that was on Brownswood except for the dreamer. And then after I did black magic, you know, we, we parted ways just because like actual creative differences, Mm. you know, um, too many cooks in the kitchen, man. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah. Black magic, black magic is the one album that I have out that I didn't have control over track listing. There were some tracks on there that I didn't want on the album. But I just kind of said, fuck it, like, it is what it is, mm. you know. But that was the first time I was able to meet uh, and work with Flying Lotus, which was super cool. Giles linked us up, and, yeah, you know, I don't know. It's, like, it's been a really interesting career. You know, I'm I'm at a... It's, it's cool to talk about this now, too, because I've just finished tracking my last record for the new album mm. in New York, like, three days ago, two days awesome. ago. And... Again, it's totally different from anything I've ever done. You got a
4: name for the album? Yeah, Love in a Time of Madness. Love in the Time of Madness. Yeah, cool. Uh, it must have been a pretty, pretty uh, big deal for you to get signed by Blue Note. Then after um, after that, yeah, a dream come true, man. Yeah, yeah, it's um, I
1: don't know. It's interesting because when you're on the outside. You think about um, labels, and probably like as a filmmaker, you think about um, studios, studios in a, in a different and, way. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And then when you're inside, you're like, "Oh God, this is just a just a bunch of people sitting in empty offices with ideas mm. and 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 a
4: shit ton of emails." <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the illusion gets ruined.
1: Yeah, and um, you know it's interesting because I actually got to a point where I was super sick of labels. After I left Brownswood, I signed to Verve, and they put me on Impulse, which was supposed to be like a, the rebrand of that label. Mm. Um, and it started off really uh, in a great way. Like, we were going to do this kind of like super cool, kind of like the album I'm making now. Like, Lotus was going to produce some stuff. It was going to be all like production, beat makers, like a future hip-hop R&B album. On impulse, which would have been like, "Wow, mm. clearly that didn't happen," um, because the crash came and things got super complicated. A ton of people got fired, and when thing, when people get fired, then things get tight, and mm. you lose your champions, and then next thing you know, you're like, "Wow, I'm on this contract, and they want me to make some vision I don't want to make." So ended up leaving um, Verve, and just making an album without a label. And that's how I started No Beginning, No End. I met Pino Palladino in London. I was living in London. Um, did a session with him at his house. We wrote a song and he's like, man, I want to do your whole album, which uh, again, it's like another you know, Aretha Franklin moment where it's like, mm. what, Like you, you're you gonna do my album? Like, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, of course. And that was it. And we just started working on the album. The first session, um, we set up in New York was with Russ Elevato who you know famously produced Voodoo for D'Angelo, and Mama's Gun and a ton of stuff. He was tracking at Magic Shop, which is now closed, um, where Arcade, Arcade Fire used to work out. All you know, tons of albums that were made there. Mm. Um, Chris Dave on drums, Robert Glasper on keys, Pino on bass. I mean, it was just like, wow. Pretty big lineup, yeah. And you know, and this is another thing, you know, that I think is important to share um, with creative communities. It's like at that point, this was my what fourth record, uh, no label, no management, and um, everything was out of pocket. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I must have, I don't know, spent like 30 grand on the first sessions, you know, just myself um and I, I believed in it i was believing in my my own stuff i didn't have enough money to make the entire record the way i wanted to um because with those kind of people and mm. those kind of studios like <laughs> 30 grand is like three days of work you know yeah, it's yeah. Like nothing um but i really believed in it you know and i i got a, like four tracks done and you can really hear that that sound like it's all over your body vanguard tracks like that trouble i did in the uk um that was the genesis and so that's what don was heard and he's like oh wow i'm signing this so i was the first artist that he signed to Blue mm. Note, and don was is like you know legend i mean as we're speaking right now he's in london producing the rolling stones so it's just like yeah right, wow yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> so i've been it's really lucky to too. like um meet these like real music lovers and who really champion what I want to do because I would say up until this current record, everything I've done has been very selfishly artistic, Mm. um, which is pretty rare
4: to be able to to do that on a major label level, you know? Mm. Well, I'm very happy that you managed to meet those people because I selfishly get to consume your selfish creativity (laughs) Um, I feel like we're going to need like parts two, three, four, and five of this interview, but um, I, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to sit down and have a ramble with me. I have one question that I finish every interview with, and that question is, "What makes you silly?" What makes me silly? Well, my
1: daughter, she's three, so mm. I just took her to um, this last week to this place called Sesame Place which is a, a Sesame Street theme park mm. for tiny kids in uh, Pennsylvania, like right by Jersey, and it's incredible. And it's really funny because my my um, aunt and uncle gave her an original vinyl of Burt Ernie songbook from 1975, I don't know where they found it. And so she's been obsessed with it, mm-hmm. and it's really good. It's really like the old school, like people really singing and playing and stuff. And she's been looking at the album cover of like them at a piano, you know. And then I take her to this park a week later, and she gets to meet them. So it's like for a three-year-old, it's like the celebrity. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like she's like, "Oh, I just met Bert Ernie." Bert Ernie, yeah, yeah. And it's it's so cool. (laughs) Like we were in this like little photo line. It was like Bert Ernie and Elmo, and she's just like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna meet Elmo." (laughs) You know what I mean? And I totally get it, man. It's like that's how I, I felt about meeting, you know, Pino or, like, any of these guys, obviously a little different, but yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It's that same, like... For Aretha Franklin, say, Elmo. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like... Yeah, I think it's important to, like, give kids these opportunities to, like, achieve dreams early so you realize, oh, like, this is graspable, and they, they connect the dots, like, that picture on that record cover is a person out there doing something, mm. even though it's, like, Elmo but yeah, you know yeah. what I mean like yeah so it's, it's it's fun to be be a child again mm. with, with my daughter it's super cool it's beautiful man yeah. do you sing with her sing Sesame Street stuff with her? Uh, I don't sing that much unless I'm on stage but we I definitely play guitar and drums and stuff with her I mean she's like she's super talented it's mm. like in the blood you know I'm not trying to push her to do music but she's just like has a little toy piano and a little djembe and she's just like super in it you know mm. it's pretty fun that's awesome man. Yeah, thank you so much thank you guys
2: for someone divine where I want to go and you know I'm feeling like a long time I've waited for someone divine and